Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. Today happens to be, if I remember correctly, our 11th show. We, the last time we met uh, for our 10th show, we were talking about the purchase offer. Uh, what I wanted to do though, is I'm going to mention again to you, is that our first midterm exam, let me make this really clear so that nobody has any misunderstanding, our first midterm exam will be coming up uh, in about a week or so, what I want you to do is to make sure that you go to the Blackboard website. Make sure, I've gone over this about, maybe this is 10,001 times. Make sure you go to the Blackboard website. I have put the, the button on there with the exam schedule that tells you the room and the times that we're going to have the exam. Uh, as I mentioned also, I'm going to be sending an email out to all of you to remind you of that. Another question that I got from a, one of the students here in the room is, can, what do you bring to the exam? So I'll mention that again. When you come to the exam, what you need to bring with you is a number two pencil. Number two pencil, like this. Number two pencil. You need to bring the Scantron 882 that I've talked about in the, uh, in the course outline that you can purchase at the bookstore. And uh, that's about it. You need, oh, and by the way, bring yourself. Okay, those three things are really important. She laughed. That's a joke, by the way. Um, what's going to happen is, is that when I put the time down that you're supposed to show up for the exam, according to that exam schedule, remember we're going to have two sessions, one for the morning students and one for the evening. That's another question that I get. Uh, how about if I take the class in the morning, can I come in the evening one? Yes. How about if I take the class in the evening, can I come in the morning because I'm off that day? Yes. The whole purpose of having two different exam times is to fit the student's needs, whatever works best for you. The thing that you want to keep in mind is that you're going to want to make darn sure that you show up so that we start the exam at the time that's in the exam schedule. In other words, don't come in the door late. And the reason why I'm kind of emphasizing that is that in order to set these rooms up for the number of people that are going to be coming, and there's a lot of people that are taking this class, what we need to do is we, need, we have people that will be in that room from maybe another instructor before the class starts, so they're all going to be leaving. I need to get you guys in, seated, in place, start the exam, and then get you finished and out of the room because it's probably going to be used by another instructor. So we need to have you here on time. Now, if you show up late, you'd probably be the first one that's ever showed up late. Uh, every single time, all the students are very courteous. They always show up on time. They make sure that they've arranged and had parking or have somebody drop them off. Remember that if you have a parking problem, we have, you can take light rail here. You could, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get here, but you want to be here on time so we can get started and finished and out the door. Very, very important. You should have also downloaded the study guide and looked up all those answers. I'm trying to very closely simulate how you would be preparing yourself to take the real estate sales or broker's exam, and that's what you would be doing. You would be doing a lot of studying. And then when you got ready to take the exam at the Department of Real Estate, they would say to you, you can come to the exam, you need to bring a pencil, <laughs> you need to bring a calculator, and then they will supply the answer sheet, the test booklet, and uh, two, usually two pieces of paper. And there's nothing else you can bring with you. You can't bring any books or study materials or anything like that. So we're trying to simulate as close as we can what that will be like. Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to continue on now. <clears throat> in, uh, if I remember correctly, we're in Chapter 6 of uh, the book. We were on basically page 222 and what we're doing is spending a lot of time going over this purchase offer. Now while you may think that I'm spending you know maybe a class or two going over this, 
students of mine that are in my internship class have told me as of yesterday that they took one class that was provided by their real estate broker in which I think it either took four or eight hours just going over this document. How important it is. The laws behind every single solitary line and what needed to be filled out and how to take care of it. So in other words, this is a very, very important document. Anything that you create, because remember, besides selling real estate, you are really in the real estate contract creation business. And if you, something goes wrong, guess what they're going to do? They will pull your contract. You will have attorneys looking at what you wrote in the contract. That's why it's very, very important that you make sure you write these correctly. Anyway, I'm going to be spent. what the book has done is, is it's taken every single paragraph almost and broken it out. So I'm going to kind of show you what I can for the remainder of the class and talk about it. Uh, on page 222, which is what the page that I'm showing right now, and this is in the fifth edition of the book, I'm continuing on from here, and I just want to mention a couple things as I go through as they break the paragraph out. This one here is just showing you the balance of the purchase price, and then this is the amount of the price. What this is essentially doing is reflecting how much, when they say balance of the purchase price, what it means is that you're paying $800,000 for the property, if you go back prior to this, you'll see where the uh, owner, I believe, is getting something like $640,000 loan. They're putting a $10,000 down payment. And then what's being said here is that the before, on or before the close of escrow, the buyer is going to be coming in with an additional $150,000. And that's not going to be from a loan. That's usually from the purchase or, the, I'm sorry, the sale of a home that they have. So in this price range, usually what's happened is they probably have sold their second or third home they have a considerable amount of equity they've gotten out of the house and what they're doing is they're coming in they're buying this eight hundred thousand dollar house they put ten thousand dollars down as a down payment they're going out and get a getting a brand new first loan first note and deed of trust first loan for six hundred and forty thousand so if you put the ten thousand six forty together that's six fifty and what they're doing is they're coming in with the remaining hundred and fifty thousand dollars when on or near the end of the close of escrow which means that probably what's going to happen is, is that as soon as their transaction closes, what's going to happen is they'll instruct their escrow officer on their transaction, the sale of their property, to transfer that money from this proceeds of that sale from their property to this, to this property. And typically in today's market, that's normally done electronically. Usually what will happen is, is that, the, uh, that the escrow officers will just say, what's your bank account or which escrow company you're working with, and they will electronically transfer the funds. And the reason why is because the funds are there immediately. The reason why they don't like to do it anymore with a cashier's check is because usually most banks will want some period of time to verify that the cashier uh, check will clear, and that can tie up escrow. So they want to have the money immediately. Okay, so that's what that paragraph is talking about. Next one, this is loan applications. This is just essentially saying that the person is going to go ahead and get a loan application. It says if the buyer does not provide a letter from the lender showing the buyer is either pre-qualified or pre-approved within seven days after acceptance of the days inserted in the blank line, the seller may cancel the agreement. Essentially what we're doing is we're saying, listen, Mr. and Mrs. Buyer, when you buy this property, we need to know really quickly whether or not you can get loans. You can get the money to buy this property. We need to know it like right away. And we're going to give you seven days. And from that seven days, within that period of time, you need to communicate to us in writing that you do have a lender that's going to lend you the money. Otherwise, I'm going to cancel the deal and I'm going to put it back on the market again. Okay, so very, very important. In fact, that's why I say 
that what you should really do if you're a really good real estate agent is get to know a really, really good loan broker or loan agent really well because you want somebody you can pick up that telephone with and say, listen, I'm sorry to bother you on the weekend, but I have Mr. and Mrs. Jones here. They just walked in the door. We have an offer we want to make, and we want to get those people pre-qualified like right now. Can you do this? Can you help me? And uh, who you're talking to is a loan agent. It's very, very critical because the seller doesn't want to take the property off the market if they are not rest assured that that person can financially afford to buy it. That's why it's so important. Because when you take it off the market, you're doing a whole bunch of stuff. You're changing the sign outside. You're, you know, you're putting an MLS telling them, listen, it's sale is pending. You're telling all your fellow agents in the community that the house is in, in escrow. And now, if all of a sudden the buyer doesn't qualify, guess what's happening? You've got to reverse that entire process. You've got to go back out again. You, you know, and in between, you may have missed the very client that may have been able to buy that house. So you've got to be very careful. You want to make sure the client's really qualified. Uh, this one right here is just a verification of down payment. It says uh, verification down payment to avoid possibility that the buyer will be unable to obtain the required down payment and closing costs before the close of escrow. The buyer may be required to verify down payment and closing costs with their, after seven days of acceptance. So essentially what you're doing is you're just, this is another way where you're double checking and making sure that not only can the buyer make the down payment, can they afford the closing costs. Now the closing costs sometimes are paid for by the buyer in addition to the purchase price. Sometimes they are paid for as part of the escrow and they are financed in the loan. But what you don't want to do is have where you have a deal, the client goes out and gets a loan on the property only to find out that the client now also, besides their down payment, needs to come in with another three, four, or $5,000 in fees to pay for escrow title and all kinds of other things. So that's why you want to make sure the deal is solid, very important. Um, this right here, uh, the next one is just talking about something called the contingency, contingency removal. Uh, I would probably have to defer this in many cases to an attorney as far as any kind of litigation goes, but the big thing is, is that if you have a contingency in the contract, a contingency essentially means it's, if, if you will, I look at it as, I can look at, you can look at it as an escape clause. It's a way for somebody to get out of something, okay? What you really are doing is you want to make sure that if you have a clause in there that is contingent, and I'm talking about contingent on the people getting financing, contingent on them looking at the appraisal, contingent upon them getting a termite report, a preliminary title report, make sure that they not only review it, but that they sign something that says they have done it. Because otherwise, later on, they can turn around and say, oh, we didn't get a chance to look at that report. And you may say, well, we can go to court and fight that. I'm here to tell you, you don't want to go to court. What you want to do is you want to do everything and get, have them look at it and sign something and say, I am now, I, I approve it and move on down the road. All these things where people will say, oh, you can go to court and you can get hire an attorney. It's going to cost you a fortune. It's going to tie your real property up. You just want to be very, very practical and judicious as far as saying this is a contingency. You have this time to do it. Once you've done it, I need to have you put something in writing to say that you're removing that contingency and we're going to move forward. And as all of those contingencies get removed, you get closer and closer to closing the transaction. Very critical on a deal. Very critical. And you'll see a lot of these. You have a loan contingency removal. You have an appraisal contingency removal. 
just all of these contingency <laughs> removal things, I feel, need to be not only reviewed, double-checked, and acknowledged, but also removed, saying I've satisfied that requirement. Okay. Um, this paragraph right here deals with uh, closing and occupancy. Essentially, what we're trying to do here is to say, you know, in this particular paragraph, which you can see in your book, it's hard to see here on TV, but you're really talking about when close and when you're going to occupy the property. And so here it says the buyer intends or does not intend to occupy the property as their primary residence. Is that true or not? If it's not at their primary residence, they're buying it as a rental property. The second one is uh, seller um, <clears throat> occupied or vacant property. Occupancy shall be delivered to the buyer at whatever the time and the date is or close of escrow, and you're just specifying whatever those times and dates are, okay? Again, this is something you need to read and make sure you understand and explain to your client. Um, I'm going to move on from there. Let me see. Again, this is just talking about this one paragraph, which is on page 235, is talking about the fact if the property is occupied by a tenant, okay? And just so that you know, there can be a lot of situations in which you need to address this. The property could be no more than a rental property. If it's a rental property and you're going to buy a property like a duplex or a single family home or a condo or a townhouse or apartment house, whatever you're going to buy, and the intention of you buying it is so that you are going to continue to operate it as a rental property, then you may very well want to just allow those tenants to stay in the property. The second scenario is, is where you're going to buy the property, but the tenants are going to move out. A good example of that is where maybe the owner has the property, they've had it for a number of years, the reason why they kept it as a rental, they didn't want to, but they kept it as a rental, in fact, they even lived there, is because at the time they couldn't sell it. Now they need to sell the property. It's in a very nice area, very lovely area, but it's been occupied by tenants. And now the tenants need to move out because you're going to move in as a personal residence. Okay, so that's what we're talking about here. Also, another thing which I'm not sure whether it's all covered here is that if the tenant has been paying any money, things like deposits, security deposits, damage deposits, prepaid rent, all those kinds of things, you need to make sure that if the owner has collected those, that you're going to get that money so when the tenant gets ready to move out that you can provide that money to them. You don't want the tenant to move out and say, oh, by the way, I gave Joe $5,000 cleaning and damage deposit, or I gave Joe, you know, uh, uh, you know, first month's, last month's rent and a damage deposit. Now you need to pay me four or $5,000. you are going to go, I didn't know anything about that. So you need to make sure you're aware of that. And believe me, you as the agent need to know. Because what will happen is if the client doesn't get the money, the client's going to call you. <laughs> That's what they're going to do, and they're going to want to know why you don't know. This is something under here called warranties. Um, it says warranties are third party automatically assigned by the contract, and the close seller provides the buyer with a warranty documentation. And essentially, all it's really doing is it says at the close of the escrow, the, uh, the, the seller assigns to the buyer any assignable warranty rights for the terms included in the sale and shall provide any available copies of such warranties. In other words, any kind of warranties that are with the property. You're going to provide those to the, to the buyer when they move in. Um, I'm trying to think of something, and I think possibly one of the warranty examples that we could utilize would be something like you may get a roof 
put on your home, brand new roof. And the company that puts the roof on says, listen, we will promise that we will warrant that roof, regardless of whether you live in there, you sell it or rent it out, but we're going to warrant it for the next five or ten years. And that's a warranty that happens to be transferable between you and the... So you can transfer that warranty by filling out the appropriate paperwork from the, from the, uh, from the seller to the buyer. And you may have even mentioned that as part of your offering. You may have said, brand new roof under warranty. Well, they need to have the warranty to continue. Okay. Um, this is talking about allocation of costs. Uh, let me see if I can pull this up. This is talking about paragraph A and, uh, A1 and A2 here. And let me see if I can zoom this out a little bit. Okay. A1 and A2 are wood-destroying pests. The, the parties identify which are uh, them responsible to pay for the inspection of wood-destroying pests and which company is to prepare the report. The report covers accessible areas in the main building and attached structures and stru structures. If any other areas, including inaccessible areas, are not to be inspected, the appropriate box should be. Here's the thing that you want to do with any kind of inspection that's done, and it needs to be really clear to the clients and clear to you is that whenever any inspector, I don't care if it's a pool inspector, a termite inspector, a roof inspector, it doesn't make any difference, a home inspector, whatever. 99% of the time, there's always some area in which they can or cannot, they cannot get to and examine. For example, you could have a termite inspection in which it would come, like I had a termite inspection on the house that I had. And the inspector came in and inspected everything. He crawled underneath the house. He did all kinds of things. But one of the things he did is he said, I cannot get and inspect in certain areas of the garage because you have cabinets up against the wall. And that happens to be areas in which I could check to see if there was any infestation or any kind of termites or bugs coming into the house. Now, I ended up using the same company to do repair work, and I also had to have a reinspection. When I had the reinspection done, guess what I did? I moved all those shelves, all that stuff from away from the walls to the center of the garage so that that inspector could go all the way around the inside of that garage and make darn sure that there was nothing wrong because I did not want, you know. But most reports will have some kind of limitation on what they're going to provide or what they're going to inspect. And so, again, you want to be familiar with that. Okay, um, and wood destroying termites and bugs are, uh, in fact, if you're going to purchase a home, one of the things that the, uh, that the um, if for lack of a better word, the mortgage company will look for is look for a turtle, uh, turtle, uh, t will look for the termite report. And they're going to want a clear termite report before they're going to lend any money. Uh, okay, this is something called government requirements and retrofit. The parties uh, may negotiate who has to pay for compliance with smoke detector installation, water heater bracing, and any other retrofits required by the government agency. I'm here to tell you that what's happening now is, is that in California, at least, all water heaters that are in the house need to be braced. And the reason for that is because the way the water heater sits, you may think, oh, wow, well, we have a... We have an earthquake, and the water heater falls down, and it, you know, and the water spills out. That's not their real concern. Okay, what their concern in reality is is that the water heater is typically connected to. First, you have the water damage. That's the first problem. But then, on top of that, 
water heaters usually get are heated by things called uh, gas. If you have gas, like natural gas or propane, so if that gas if that falls, it could break the pipe. If it falls and breaks the pipe, also attached to that device is something called electricity. <laughs> if the electricity happens to spark and ignite the ignite the gas coming in, it can make the house go on fire. In fact, I have been told that in the area, you know, and this year right now, which is uh, 2006, uh, last year we had something called Katrina, which was a hurricane or hurricanes down around New Orleans. And one of the things that I remember reading in the paper was that when the hurricane came through, what it did is it turned around and it, you know, blew all down a whole bunch of structures and it did a whole bunch of damage. And part of that is it knocked out the electricity. And so the electricity wasn't available for whatever number of days. Well, guess what happened? When they turned the electricity back on again, it caused fires. Now, why did it cause fires? Because the hurricane had knocked down wiring, which now started to spark, or it knocked down, you know, uh, gas lines, which now were putting gas out, and now we had electricity. And you can have where all of a sudden, after some calamity, and everything seems to be okay, you go, whew, the storm is over with. It knocked the power out. PG&E or SMUD are going to get the power back up again. You turn the power back on again, the next thing you know is the house next to you is on fire because the water heater you know, fell over and now it, it caught on fire. Okay, so very, very important. The second thing is a smoke detector. Smoke detectors are another thing that's very important. They need to be, I know like in, 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 in my house, I have smoke, you're required to have a smoke detector in every room, every bedroom, everything. And I know... I know in my house there's two different methods that run those smoke and there's two different types of smoke detectors. The ones that I have are powered by the electricity and the house also have backup batteries and they also have devices that will go off in the event that they lose power. So if you start to hear a beep and then maybe you know a half hour later you hear another beep that's the smoke detectors going off saying replace my battery, replace my battery. But they're important, you have to have those. Uh, so again, these are things that are required. You also may find out that there are other things. For example, if you have things like swimming pools, you have to usually have child protection devices on all the doors that open to the outside area so that if the kids go and open the door up, the alarm goes off. In fact, they kind of drive you crazy because if you open the door up and you slide the door closed, that doesn't shut the alarm off. The alarm keeps going. You've got to go over and push the button. So it's to protect for children getting in the pool. Okay, and drowning. Anyway, so anyway, they talk about that, and then let me see here. They talk about escrow and title. Here they talk about who's going to pay the escrow and the title fees. Here they're talking about they're going to split them 50-50. You're going to hear the term a lot of times where they're going to talk about what's customary or, or that the seller always pays or the buyer always pays. Remember, all of these fees, unless some government organization comes down and says different, are negotiable. Who pays these fees? So if you're trying to put a deal together and in order to make it go together you have to have the seller pay all the fees or you have to have the buyer pay all the fees. That can be negotiated. But in this case they're saying who's going to pay them and what the name of the title company is. They're saying it's going to be ABC Title Company. This is just talking about other, th other costs that you may have. There are going to be a lot of other costs that are associated with the transfer. For example, there are going to be fees to record deeds grant deeds, deeds of trusts, uh, deeds of reconveyance, uh, all those other kinds of fees are the fees that are listed here. 
Okay, so the question is, is who's going to pay those fees? Is it the buyer who's going to pay them or the seller going to pay them? Again, this is another one of those where somebody may say, customarily, in our county or in our city, the seller pays it. And you should say, you mean it's negotiable, right? Yes. Okay, so keep that in mind. Um, this is something called just statutory disclosures for lead-based paint and hazardous paint. This is just talking about, if you remember, and we've discussed this, I think, before, there are a number of disclosures that you have to put out, such as, um, you know, whether you have lead-based paint. Uh, there's also disclosures that the seller has to make as to not only what equipment and, and stuff they have in the house, but whether it works or not, okay, if you remember that. And also the selling real estate agent is required selling, but the agent that listed the property for sale has a requirement to do an inspection and disclose if they found anything. So there's a lot of disclosures that have to be, they have to do. Another thing that they have in here is something called uh, Melarus. Okay, what you're really doing in this particular case is if the house has any kind of additional assessments, I mean, most people when they buy a house are used to having to pay three things. They have to pay, or actually, one of them is they pay what we call the mortgage, which usually includes principal and interest. Then they have to provide fire insurance and they have taxes. So if you look at it, you have your monthly house payment for the mortgage. Your, print, uh, your taxes, and your insurance. But in addition to that, you may very well find out that the homeowner, depending upon where it's located, and it doesn't necessarily mean whether it's a townhouse or a condominium. It could be anything nowadays. You're going to find out that there may be homeowner's dues that have to be paid, and they need to know about that. And clients, if you do have a homeowner's association that's established, they need to look at and review all of the bylaws and documents and make sure they understand it and sign off on it, that they've read and understand it so that they know. For example, they may be buying the house and saying, you know what, we're going to buy it and hey, that driveway is really big and we're going to park our motorhome right there or we're going to park our boat right there. They read those documents for the homeowners association only to find out you can't park your motorhome and you can't park your boat in the driveway. Okay. And they may, so that, that's how they're going to find out. Also, the homeowners associations are going to charge a fee. And they're going to do things like uh, usually there'll be some kind of a monthly fee that you're going to have to pay. Also, the homeowners association may do things like provide services. Like they may cut, like where I live, they cut the front yard, thank goodness. They cut the yard, they trim the bushes. It's part of my association dues that I pay. I also have a thing called Melarus that I pay, which is a special bond in which the money was used to do all the improvements for the subdivision. So the point is there may be a lot of other fees, homeowners association fees, special bond acts, Melarus that has to be paid. They need to be disclosed to the buyer, and any necessary documentation needs to be provided to the buyer so that they understand what's going on. Okay? I think that's enough of that. Uh, this, let me see what this is right here. Okay, this says the buyer has the right of cancellation within three days of personal delivery of the transfer disclosure statement, natural hazmat statement, lead-based disclosure statement, or amended disclosure, or five days after mailing. All that essentially means is that after they receive the document, they have so many days to review it and make sure that they understand it. And they may very well, because of that disclosure or that report, decide that they do not want to buy. 
You know, I mean, people can be fastidious about things. They can say, hey, I didn't know that that house had lead-based paint. And you could, you could explain to them, to the cows come home, that you've done all sorts of things to make sure that's not going to affect anybody. And they say, I don't want that. Another thing you'll see are some other things that are, are causes, uh, things like mold. I mean, I'm not allergic to it, but you can get some people, if they are around mold, my goodness, they start sneezing, coughing, they, their head swells up, they tear, you know, they, they cannot be around that. And they're very susceptible to that. So they may very well say, hey, listen, I didn't know there was mold there. I knew I was a little, it bothered me a little bit, but, you know, I'm not going to buy because of that, okay? And so it becomes very important to you realize that people do have the right, once they, they have to have the time to get the disclosure, read and understand the disclosure, make a decision, and then decide whether they're going to agree to it or not, okay? Uh, this is talking about something called natural hazards. The seller must provide to the buyer natural hazard disclosures. Um, and these are things like, is the property in a uh, flood zone? Uh, very f high fi fire hazard area. Fire hazard area would be where, for example, the house um, is out in the country someplace and there's a lot of brush around the house, a lot of trees, and there's a really good possibility if they get a fire, the place is going to burn down to the ground. Okay, and they need to know about that. A lot of times you have to do, like up in, uh, out in the outlying areas, like where one house that I had for a whole bunch of years the fire department would come by every year and we were if we if we didn't cut or make sure we cut the brush around the house down the fire department would say no problem we'll hire somebody and send you the bill but you are going to cut that stuff down because if it catches on fire it's going to burn the whole neighborhood down you also find that it can be difficult in some places to get fire insurance uh, certain companies uh, for example like AAA that provides car insurance and provides homeowners insurance are a very conservative company. They're more than happy to insure your house if it's in a nice brand new subdivision with no trees around it. You get into an outlying area where you have a house that might be a little bit older with a shake roof on it and there's a lot of trees and brush around it, a lot of those companies are going to go, no, we don't want that risk. Go call somebody else. So you need to know about that. Um, state fire responsibility, earthquake fault zone, Okay, so any of these things that you happen to know about, you need to tell the people. They need to have that information disclosed. And just because they're moving, uh, and especially if they're moving from another area, they may have, you know, from another state, they may have no clue of what's going on. Or if they're moving from the south up here, they may have no clue. Or even if they're living in Sacramento, they may not. If you went around to Sacramento and went, to, went out to Sunrise Mall with a microphone and a TV camera and ask everybody that walked by, can you tell me where the flood areas are in Sacramento? I mean, some people could tell you and some couldn't. So it's something that has to be disclosed to people. They have to know that, that they have the potential for that. Uh, this disclosure right here has to do with, uh, this, is, this is to inform the clients that there is a state database that has a list of sexual offenders and that they have to write to know whether those people happen to live in the neighborhood. And we all see those news articles in the paper on a fairly regular basis where one of these people that has been in jail gets out of jail, they move into the community, and the community just about has a heart attack as a whole. But what they do have, they have to register, and when they register, they're in a database. And that means that their clients have the right to have that information to know, and that can be a decision whether they want to, move, you know, whether they want to live in the area or not. Okay, so that's that.
This down here is talking about something called uh, a paragraph on condominium and planned unit development uh, disclosures. Uh, just again, if you have, you know, and you see this typically in things like uh, condo units, you know, where you have a condominium, you have a common areas, like you have a swimming pool, you have tennis courts, you have common parking area. Those things are run by associations. Those clients need to read and understand those documents. As an example, my son lived in a place called uh, uh, Woodside off of Howe Avenue. And I'm here to tell you that you could have a brand new $50,000 gleaming beautiful pickup truck. And you, if you want to park it in that area, and if you could be parked in a parking place, and right next to you could be this most ugliest looking car with 16 different colors of Bondo on it and, and just look awful. And you know who gets the ticket? The truck does. Because the association has a rule that says you cannot park pickup trucks in there. Okay? So that's another reason why tenants or clients need to know that kind of stuff. They need to know that. There, a lot of those places will have different kinds of rules and regulations. For example, I'm not, I wouldn't say this is perfectly true, but I do know at one time Woodside, any drapes that you had, if you put drapes in the window, the outside, when you looked from the outside to the inside of the, of the condo unit, the lining on the drapes had to be white in color. So they looked uniformly the same. So even if it was shutters, you could put shutters on your window, but whatever faced the outside had to be white. If you didn't, ha if you didn't follow those rules, you got fined, okay? So it's really important that clients understand that. They just need to sit down and go over that. And probably in a lot of cases, they also need to know that it, uh, once they move there, that if they've never done it before, is that they can actually be in very actively involved in, in the homeowners association. I mean, they're, they're run by owners. So if, if, if they want to get involved in that and run for office and be a president of the association, they can do that. Uh, this is just conditions affecting the property. It says the property is being transferred in its present physical condition on the date of acceptance. So the offer of the seller must also disclose known adverse material facts, okay, insurance claims that they've had affecting the property. If you had an insurance claim, like when, if you have had a property for a number of years and you've had anything like wind damage, water damage, anything, any damage at all, and you have filed an insurance claim, you have to disclose that to the buyer have to because what happens is is that uh, that can have a material effect on first of all what caused the problem the second thing is is it can affect their ability to maybe buy insurance on the place so if you have any kind of an insurance claim you need to disclose that and that can be people have insurance claims for a lot of times it's wind damage you know rain and wind damage the tree bangs against the house knocks the rain gutter off that's covered by your insurance uh, the water heater breaks floods the whole house, that's covered by insurance. So you put a claim in. Just keep in mind that if you've ever had a claim, you have to disclose that. Your clients have to disclose that. Okay. Uh, this right here is just saying the buyer's uh, admonished to conduct his or her own investigation of the property for all defects because the property is sold without any warranties. Essentially what we're doing is on the day, like we've talked about with those disclosure statements before, what the, what the seller is doing is saying, I honestly and truly, to the best of my knowledge, believe 
that this is, these are the devices I have in the house, such as a dishwasher, oven, range, you know, whatever it happens to be, and as far as I know, they work. And you're really telling them that, listen, you also need to be aware that you can go out and physically inspect the property or hire somebody to do that. But when you do that, I'm just telling you that it works now, but I am not warranting it. What does that mean? That means if the buyer moves in, and maybe they've even hired a home inspector, and the buyer moves into the property, and two weeks later, they get ready to do the dishes for maybe the first time. They turn the dishwasher on, and it starts to work, but it quits in the middle, or it floods, or it does something else. If, it's, if, if it appears that there's nothing that the seller has done to cover it up, in other words, the seller hasn't done anything, you know, hasn't, you know, you know the, that it's flooded before or something else, then what happens is the buyer just, you know, that, that's their problem. But what usually sellers do to prevent just any kind of problems, usually the sellers will pay some kind of fee, usually three, four hundred bucks or more, to get a warranty policy so that in the event that that dishwasher quits within the first year, instead of calling back and saying, well, you, Mr. Seller, didn't tell me that, blah, 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 you just say, listen, call the warranty company and they'll come out and have somebody fix it. Because there's a lot of that stuff that we, we don't necessarily know whether it works correctly because we maybe don't use it on a regular basis. Okay, so that's enough of that. Okay. This is just talking here about items that are excluded. Uh, this would be where you would put down any of the items that you are not going to include in the sale of the property. And what I would usually like to say is that, uh, you know, uh, you may have some, for example, somebody may have a chandelier. That's what I can think of, a beautiful chandelier. And if you ever go out to some of these stores and price them out, they cost an arm and a leg. Some of them cost a lot of money. Or maybe it's a fairly uh, family heirloom. It's something that's been in the family for a lot of years. And what's going to happen is when you move out, if you don't take that with you, grandma's really going to be upset at you because she gave that to you. And so when you have the open house and people are looking at the house for sale, you're going to leave it there because it makes the house look nice. But what you're going to very clearly put down is that the chandelier is not going to go with the house. What that essentially means is that when you leave and the buyer walks in that first day, that's not going to be there. And typically what will happen is usually you will turn around and put some other kind of a, a light up in its place. And I've seen that happen both with the sale of property and I've even had on rental property where people will do that. You know, uh, I mean, where they'll come in and have their own chandelier or they'll put their own fan in and then when they get ready to move out, they want to take their fan with them. You know, like, hey, I, I spent the 150 bucks to buy the fan, that goes with me. And I say, okay, fine, take the fan. I put the fixture back up again, okay? Um, this is just buyer's investigation of the property, just telling the buyer that they have the ability to, to um, inv investigate the property, which we've talked about. Uh, the next thing is, is something, and I'm trying to move through this as quick as I can, something called repairs. Repairs, if any, must be done with permits and in compliance with building codes and completed before the buyer's final verification of condition of the property. Seller must obtain repair receipts and prepare written statements to perform repairs and dates. I would say that this just basically, in my mind, covers a couple things. Number one is, is that any work that needs to be done on the house 
that's discovered by you or by the buyer that you have negotiated that you're going to fix. That means that that needs to be fixed before they take acceptance. It doesn't mean that where you promise that you're going to fix the stove because it doesn't work and then you never get around to it. It means you have to have it fixed. The second thing that this brings to my mind is that what you need to do is that if you are listing a house for sale, you need to look right face-to-face -to, -face to the client and say, Mr. and Mrs. Client, is there any work that you've done in this house that has required a building permit and you have not gotten it? Most cases, they don't even know. The second thing is, is your question you're going to ask them is, if you have gotten a building permit, was the final inspection completed? And in a lot of cases, you're going to find out if your career, uh, as your career goes on that there's a lot of people that will get a building permit perform the work, have inspections done throughout it, and then when it gets ready for the final inspection, somebody's not there, the building inspector doesn't tell somebody, and the next thing you know, it never gets the final inspection done. Has that ever happened to me? Yes. <laughs> it has happened to me several times, even down to the fact that I had a pool put in, and we thought that every single solitary thing was done. Then I got a letter in the mail about a month or two, probably in December of this year, to say, oh, by the way, the final inspection was never done on your pool. I had no idea. I, what I did is I called the building inspector up and said, get out here and <laughs> inspect the pool. You know, And the reason why is because a lot of times people will pull what we call pull building permits to have work done and just never have it done. So that's why they don't continuously, they, all they do is send a letter and say, you had an open permit, nobody's ever final the inspection, it's going, the permit will expire, and when the permit expires, it expires. Then it's incumbent upon the owner of the property to contact the building department and do whatever is necessary to get another permit to finish the work. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, let me move on from here. Let me see what else we have. This is something that you really need to be aware of. Uh, the title insurance company yesterday, Financial Title, went over this with our students, and they have some excellent materials, by the way, to provide to uh, people. You need to be asking the client on the buyer, you need to say to them, listen, one of the questions you're going to be asked by the escrow officer before you close this transaction is how you want to hold title to this property. In other words, when you walk in there that day, they're going to ask you, how do you want this? Do you want it as Mr. and Mrs. Jones' as community property? Do you want it as Mr. and Mrs. Jones' as joint tenants with a right of survivorship? Do you, want it, do you want a Pat Jones and Mary Jones tenants in common? How do you want that property titled? That has a significant impact on how, what's going to happen to that property in the event of one of the people's death. It's an estate planning issue. And so what you want to do is make sure your clients have either talked to their attorney, their accountant, or somebody to find out how they should or how they will hold title to the property. You may find out, especially in houses that are in the upper price range, that they actually have something called a living trust. And what they'll do is they'll be holding the property in the name of the trust. So you need to put your clients on uh, make them aware and if you have any questions about how that works and you wanted to provide some information to your clients then you can just call financial title they're in the phone book or they're on the web and just ask them and say I need to have the booklet the information that explains how you hold title okay and they will provide that to you by the way all, all that's free of charge okay but you don't want to get to the day you close of escrow 
and the clients sit there and say, I have no idea, and then that holds the thing up for the next two days. You don't want that to happen. You want that out of the way. Okay, this part here is the sale of the buyer's property. Essentially, what this is doing is, is it's saying whether or not the, 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 sale, the purchase of this property is contingent on the sale of the buyer's property. Let me give you an example. A lot of people that you're going to find out when you get into this business full-time that a lot of people that are buying property are usually selling something else. And the money that they're going to get as a down payment or, or as closing costs or money they need to close the transaction is going to come from the sale of their property. If their property does not sell, then what's going to happen is they're not going to be able to complete the transaction. So what this paragraph is really saying is, is this entire transaction, is this whole deal contingent upon the buyer getting their property sold? Yes or no? And you're going to find out uh, and which box you check in some cases is, is really going to be dependent a lot of times upon the market. Like, for example, if the market is really hot like it was a couple years ago, a lot of buyers that were coming to town had already either had a firm offer or their property was in escrow or had been sold, and they were desperate looking for some place to buy because they had no place to buy. And so there was not, this was not a big issue. But now properties have slowed down, so what's going to happen is people will probably be, maybe they'll be looking for houses at the same time that they're trying to sell their own house. In fact, there was just an article in the Sacramento Bee this past weekend where it talked about one of the columnists and they talked about, hey, it may not be a bad idea for you to actually complete your sales transaction before you buy the house so that you know that you don't have to worry about that. Okay. But it, you, it, and whether or not a seller agrees to this, agrees to a contingent sale, is dependent upon how long their property's been on the market. <laughs> if they've been trying to sell their property for the last six months and you're the first one that walks in the door with an offer that's contingent on the sale of your property and they need to sell their pro house, they may very well accept it because you are the only warm body that's given them any kind of an offer. Okay? On the other hand, if they have a lot of offers and some are, some are saying, hey, no, is, the sale's not contingent, on, on the purchase on the sale of my property and they're looking at two offers that are identical in price they're going to go with the one that the person is the most financially qualified and there's no contingencies on the sale of their property okay um, this paragraph here is just talking about um, the contingencies the time period for the contingencies again um, I don't, I'm starting to run out of time to actually go over every single one of these. You just want to be aware of the time frames, when they need to be removed, and making sure that they are acknowledging that they're removed. I would hate to get to the point where you're in the deal 30 days and the seller goes, oh, by the way, I never really looked at the termite report. I don't know whether I want to buy the house. <laughs> you know, I don't want to do that. This is also a continuation of the contingency. These are all contingencies. They're very, very important that you read this and know what they are. Okay. Uh, this, is, this is even going into more de uh, depth about the effect of the buyer's removal of contingencies. So they're kind of really beating this to death, how important that really is. The whole transaction can fall apart. In fact, there was a guy that... The gentleman that does a real estate show on Sunday on KFBK, channel 1530 on the radio, 
And one of the issues, one of the people I'd called in was with a question specifically about contingencies. And his answer to that was, and he's a very successful, works for Remax, successful agent says you need to make sure that they remove the contingencies and they do it in writing. You do not want to wait on the contingencies. Okay? And then this right here is just final verification uh, of the condition, the property, and the final walkthrough of the property. You're going to find out that um, usually either right before the close of escrow or a couple days before the close of escrow that the buyers are going to want to walk through the property and see the condition of it. And that is something where the, it's the buyer's agent that's going to walk them through with the permission of the owner. With the idea in mind, is there anything that you see that's really that needs to be corrected before you move in? It's their last chance to look at something and say, like, what's that big stain on the wall over there? Or I didn't see there was a big hole in the carpet. Or, hey, I just turned the light switch on and it doesn't work. Or I just flushed the toilet and it doesn't seem to flush. We're talking about things like that, a final walkthrough or an acceptance inspection. This is talking about something called liquidated damages. Liquidated damages, and this is very important paragraph. says, this provides the amount of money that the buyer agrees to pay the seller if the buyer breaches the contract, meaning the buyer decides not to go through. And what we mean by that is that everything is going along okay. You know, you've removed the contingencies. The seller's done what they said they're doing, and then you decide at the last minute, I'm not going to go through with the deal. You know, I want to quit. I want to, I want out of the deal. I'm not going to be moving to Sacramento. I don't want to buy the house. So how much of the money that you've put down can the seller hold on to? That's what this, that's what this paragraph deals with. So it says, okay, this paragraph provides the amount of money that the buyer agrees to pay, pay the seller if the buyer breaches the contract. It limits the amount to which the seller is entitled. The remedy is the amount of the deposit up to 3% of the purchase price. So what that means is if you have a $100,000 house, it could be $3,000, $200,000, so it's 3% of whatever the sales price is. Okay? If, it's, if it would be $800,000 in this case, it would be 3 times 8 is 24, it would be $24,000. Okay? Uh, purchase price, and that may seem like a lot or not seem like a lot, but at $800,000 house, and you start looking at the monthly payments you've been making and how long you have it off the market, it doesn't take that long to start driving those costs up through the roof very, very quickly. If the property is a uh, one to four unit dwelling, one of which has to be occupied by the buyer. So they're saying that this applies only if you're dealing with a place in which it's one to four units, and it only applies when one of those own units are occupied by an owner, owner-occupied. So in other words, we say one to four, if you had a fourplex, it would be where, say, the first floor, one of the first four units has the owner lives there, and the other three units are occupied by renters. Um, if not, the liquidated damages are for a reasonable amount of the deposit. Buyers and sellers must initial this part of the contract. Okay, And this also points out to the fact that if somebody comes to you and says, listen, I'm going to give you a huge amount of money as a down payment as part of a good faith. You know, I'm not going to just give you 3%. I'm going to give you a big chunk of money down. Well, the only amount that you're allowed to keep as a seller is up to 3%. Okay, So you may sit there and say, oh, wow, I got 50 grand. Only 3% you can hold on to. Okay. This talks about dispute resolution, how you're going to deal. Remember, dispute resolution falls into several different frames. You either have something called mediation, which is essentially, in my thing, it's counseling. You sit down with somebody, they listen to both sides, and they say, you know, 
how about if we work it out like this? It's like a negotiator. Arbitration is where you agree to somebody and they're going to listen to both sides. They're going to make a decision. You're going to live whatever the arbitrator says. And so you're talking about how am I going to take care of these issues if we both, if we come to some sort of a disagreement. My personal opinion, you need to try as hard as you can to act like adults. And, uh, and uh, okay, act like adults and try to, get, try to get the things worked out between you. Because the minute you start having somebody else come in, you're going to pay a lot of money. You know? So if you can get some way, that's why in a lot of cases some people will just say, you know, I know the dishwasher. I never used the doggone thing. It worked when I bought the house 10 years ago. But you know what? I just don't want to put up with the headache. It's a lot easier for me to just replace it. You know, simple. Okay? I, I, it's not worth going to court over. Okay? This chapter keeps going on and on and on with all of this kind of information. Um, it talks about a lot of different things in here. The point that I want to get to you, and it's pretty near the end of the chapter, is that uh, a couple things. First of all, when you make these offers, you make the offer and you actually have the time and the date that the offer will expire. So it says, this provision uh, specifies who is authorized to receive the seller's acceptance on behalf of the buyer and how long the offer will remain open. When you make your offer, the important point here is the fact that you're going to have a time, and I'm kind of jumping around, this is on page 247, but what it is is that when you make that offer, you're going to put a time and a date down and how long that offer is good for. And the reason why is because you want to, you know, if you've been looking at houses, you don't want to make an offer and say, oh, by the way, you have a month Whatever you think about it. You want to say, no, here's my offer. You've got 48 hours or 72 hours to make a decision and get back to me whether you accept it, reject it, or you want to counteroffer it. You know, you've been 72 hours. After the end of those 72 hours, if I don't hear back from you, that's the end of the deal. And the reason why is because you've given them a check, you've given them the money, you've focused your attention on that particular property. And if they're not going to go along or they're, you know, they're not going to be willing to sell or are going to be where they're not going to be willing to even negotiate with you, then you want to be able to move on and buy the other house or start looking for more houses. You want to know the deal is going. Okay, um, this is just talking here. Um, okay, let me see if there's anything else that I need that would be obvious. This is where you're finally selling down, signing down here, the acceptance. This is the, uh, the seller's accepting. Remember, the buyer makes the offer, but the seller accepts it. Okay? This is the acceptance of the offer down here. Okay? And then there's another paragraph, I think, here, which talks about real estate brokers. If I can remember this. Just talks about real estate brokers are not part of the contract, um, so on and so forth. The big important thing I want to get across to you all is that when you're new in the business or you're, while you're a salesperson, please remember that your broker needs to look at all these documents before you make the purchase offer. Okay, their license is on the line as well as yours. You want to make darn sure that they review them, make sure that there's anything that you've omitted or made a mistake on or haven't covered. Uh, also remember that I, I hopefully you believe me on this, that if something goes wrong, this is the contract that's going to be in front of the judge. And they're going to say, Mr. Jones, 
alumni from Sac City College, who's now a real estate agent, when you made this, why did you not put that down there? Or why did you put that down there? Okay, the very important part of the contract, extremely important part of the contract. Okay, and so uh, I'm thinking if there's anything else in here, I think that's pretty much, we're getting pretty close or pretty close to the end. Just a couple things I want to mention to you, and then we'll be closing. The next time that we meet, we're going to be covering the next chapter, which is seven, which is going to be talking about additional forms that you use in the purchase contract. And there are tons and tons of these forms. And the only way I can explain how these work is the fact that if you think back when you originally start any kind of a process, there's a point where you say, you know what, we're doing the same thing over and over again. So why don't we go ahead and make a form? So we don't have to handwrite this stuff. So a lot of these forms are there and continue to be added to and modified as a result of input from all of the people at a real estate agents. And say, you know what? I had to make so many counteroffers. Why don't we just have a counteroffer where I can start checking some blocks off? Okay? Or if I'm going to have an addendum that's going to talk about purchase requirement or, or, or um, lending requirements, why don't I just have a form I can check off? So what they're doing is they're going through, in this particular chapter, they're going to give you a list of a whole bunch of forms, California Association of Realtor forms, that you can utilize to add to listing agreements and purchase agreements or anything else that you're doing in real estate. Now, remember, these forms are also available in electronic format. Once you're an agent, once you're, an agent you're going to be able to have access to those electronic forms. So what a lot of people do is they, especially agents, will have like laptops nowadays. So they'll just, their whole business consists of a laptop and a cell phone. <laughs> and all the forms are on the laptop. And they can sit there and fill out the form, print the form out, whatever they need to do. So we're going to be talking about those forms. Also, please, please, please remember now that the first midterm exam is coming up. Please make sure that you check the Blackboard website. Make sure that you download the study guide. Remember, when you come for the exam, you're going to need a number two pencil and you're going to need a Scantron 8A2. Remember, you need to be here and start on time. Do not be late. I can't think of anything else that I can tell you <laughs> at this point in time of how important that really is. It's just so that we can get you in and out of there and uh, on time. Okay? With that, thank you very much, and we'll see you back here again for show number, I guess it would be, what, 12 or something like that. Okay, thank you very much.